You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. What I'm going to do today is not what I had had planned. You may have expected me to say, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4. In fact, I told you last week, that's almost getting predictable. But um, last night I was sitting down thinking through some announcements that I wanted to give, and there's something that's been stirring in my own heart for a number of months, and uh, it's something I sort of want to unburden on you. And it's not necessarily in connection with the Reformation, but it's something that's been stirring in my heart and I don't normally do this. And in fact, I was telling Deidre last night, I'm sure there are pastors who on Saturday night, they sit down and think through what they want to share with their congregation on Sunday morning. I've never fashioned myself intelligent or gifted or talented enough to get away with that. And so I usually don't do what I'm about to do, and that is to scrap what I have spent all week preparing and give to you something that I fleshed out this morning in a couple of hours. So if this seems disjointed and um, you want to get up and, and leave because of that, I would understand entirely. Um, this is just me going to be sharing with you some things that are on my heart and doing so in an expository manner. I am not one to give topical sermons. I don't do topical sermons. Uh, Justin Peters, who was here in March, he says you're allowed to preach one topical sermon a year and then you immediately apologize for it. I don't even like to talk, uh, give one topical sermon a year. This is going to be an expository sermon, but I'm going to do what many of you probably thought you would never, ever see in your lifetime, and that is to give you an exposition of an entire chapter of Scripture. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. This has been on my heart because this Tuesday is Election Day. And uh, in years past... There always seems to be within the evangelical community a lot of evangelical hand-wringing over elections. And we have been told, I'm sure if you listen to the news or you read the newspaper, that this is the most important election in the history of our republic. I have heard that since Carter ran against Reagan in 1980. It is always the most important election in the history of the republic. And I understand that. I understand every election has consequences because ideas have consequences and leaders have consequences. So what I want to do is I want to step back for just a moment and I want to get God's perspective on history, God's perspective on elections, God's perspective on the United States of America and our rulers and see how God feels about these things and challenge you with some things that I've been kicking around in my own heart and mind and as I sat down this morning to sort of read through Daniel 4, I was just going to do that as the scripture reading this morning, then um, all of these things sort of came to my mind and I thought really what we should be doing is looking at Daniel chapter 4, because since I've been preaching, 14 years now, we've been through, what is that, seven election cycles, that's general election counting as well as the midterm elections, and I've tried to remind people of these principles and these truths but it's time to sort of lay them all on the table and really flesh these things out in a way that I think is very thorough. Uh, Martin Luther, and it's appropriate that I would quote Luther on Reformation Day, Martin Luther said, and I'm going to paraphrase, not quote, because I can't remember exactly what he said, but this is the gist of it. 
you can preach all the way through Scripture and you can preach expositionally every Sunday and you can deal faithfully with the text and you can be faithful in the exposition of Scripture, but if you fail to address the issue where the enemy is engaged with truth, at that moment you have failed. In other words, if the enemy is here engaging this and this is where God's people are thinking and this is the issue of the time and the issue of the day and you fail to address that issue of the day, whatever it may be, and you address something else entirely, you may be faithful in addressing that other thing, but you have failed to deal with the issue that is pressing upon the hearts and the minds of people. So I want to address the issue that's at least pressing upon the hearts and minds of me, single and plural aside, my heart and my mind, and I'm sure is pressing upon your hearts and your minds as well. I don't sense that there is a lot of evangelical hand-wringing in our own congregation. Maybe I'm just not talking to enough people or not talking to you enough to sense it, but it seems to me that as a body of, of believers, this congregation understands, I think, the sovereignty of God and the rule of God over the nations, and there doesn't seem to be the angst, angst over elections. There certainly isn't in my heart like at one time there was. Daniel chapter 4 Daniel chapter 4, and let me give you, before we go through Daniel chapter 4, I want to give you a little bit of context. The book of Daniel covers a span of roughly around 70 years. Daniel was deported from the nation of Israel. It it was written, and these events cover what we call the Babylonian captivity. The nation of Babylon came in under Nebuchadnezzar and took captive the southern kingdom of Judah And they did two things. They planted a bunch of their people in that nation in order to sort of mix the marriages and the races. And then the second thing they did was they took some of the brightest and the finest of the land. And you can get this in the end of Second Chronicles. They took them back to Babylon. And Daniel was among one of those youth that was taken back to Babylon. Daniel, when he was taken, was probably between 12 and 18 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. We don't know exactly. But he was taken captive back to Babylon. And there he was eventually eventually was given a position of prominence and recognition under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the day, Babylon was the nation. They were the world power. There was not even a nation or a world power or a country or people on the face of the planet that even rivaled Babylon in its influence and its technology and its wealth and its military might. Nebuchadnezzar uh, almost single-handedly conquered the then-known world. Daniel served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, And the book of Daniel covers the 70-year period known as the Babylonian captivity. And the events of the book of Daniel end just prior to the children of Israel's return to the land of Israel where they would rebuild the wall and the temple and reform the people and sort of be reestablished and replanted in their land. So that's the context. Now, if I were to ask you before the service and before today, what would you say is the big idea, the big concept, the, the main message of the book of Daniel? You would say, well, I remember from Sunday school, Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. Or were the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, those, that was the same thing. So I remember those things. And I remember some weird sort of animals, uh, a statue of gold and clay or something like that. And I remember some weird-looking animals that a king had in a vision. I remember a prayer that Daniel had and some things about kingdoms. I think that's the main idea of the book of Daniel. Did I just answer the question, what's the main idea of the book of Daniel? No, you still don't know, do you? I'll tell you what the main idea, the main concept of the book of Daniel is. One sentence. God rules over all. Without exception. No corner of the universe is exempt from His dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation 
to generation to generation to generation, and it goes on forever. And there is no corner of the universe where He does not rule. There is no element of human life over which He is not sovereign. There is no detail of anybody's existence that He is not over top of, that He does not foresee, that He does not allow. God rules over all. That is the message of the book of Daniel. God rules over all. And nowhere is that message more prominently, more articulately, more masterfully communicated than in Daniel chapter 4, where the whole theme of the book of Daniel is unfolded in an object lesson where one man, particularly the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is used as an object lesson of this sovereign rule. So Daniel chapter 4, and you can see, by the way, and I would challenge you to do this, go home sometime today would be a good time to do it, certainly before election day, and read through the book of Daniel and just take note, mark all the places, or highlight, if you will, all the places where this rule, this kingdom, this dominion, this sovereignty of God over all things is spoken of and highlighted in the book of Daniel. You'll see it all over the place. Turn, for instance, before we get to Daniel chapter 4. Oh, you know what? I'm not even in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Turn back in the book of Daniel a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 2, verses 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is after Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which he forgot, and he asked the Babylonian magicians to come in and tell him the dream and give the interpretation. They couldn't do it, so he went and they fetched Daniel. Daniel did it. Verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said that the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Belong to the king? Belong to the elected official? No. Wisdom and power belong to whom? To him. Verse 21, It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what was we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Look at chapter 2, verse 47. After Daniel relates all of this to the king, the king says, answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealers of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. After Daniel chapter 4, look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. I'm just blasting by these, and we're going to settle in Daniel 4. And if you're thinking this is going to be a longer message, and we are getting started later than we normally do, that is true, but there is a meal immediately following this. So if you get hungry in the meantime, you'll be able to stay for the meal, and you won't have to worry about me cutting into your lunch hour. Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. I make a decree that in all of the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And look at chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel had received this vision. He said, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And back to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's first-hand account of a little episode in his life which was rather humbling. And that first-hand account is sort of 
bracketed between these parentheses of praise at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. Daniel chapter 4 begins, I, a Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Take note of that. Most High God. That's a reference to God's what? His position as ruler over all. And you can see that repeated all the way through this chapter. Verse 3. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion is from generation to generation. That's the praise at the beginning of the chapter. You'll notice, and we'll see it again at the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar repeats the same thing. We'll get there. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, king, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Now the tree is a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Verse 11, the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. That's the breadth and the scope and the massiveness of his kingdom. His kingdom ruled over all of the world at that time and all the subjects, all the peoples found shade and found repose and found provision under Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So the tree is his kingdom and its majesty is seen in the fact that all the creatures and all the birds of the sky found rest and provision under that tree. Verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. This is an angel. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. In the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. So that's evidence there that what's being spoken of here is a man. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. He's going to use that phrase two more times in the rest of this chapter. Seven periods of time. It doesn't mean seven months. It doesn't mean seven indefinite periods, but seven years is what the phrase means. He doesn't mean months because earlier, later on in the chapter, he's going to use the term months. He uses seven periods of time, and it meant seven years. So whatever is going to happen now is going to happen, and it's going to take seven years. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know now, this phrase is going to be repeated two more times. That the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whom He wishes. And He sets over it, that is, over the rulership of mankind, the lowliest of men. I love that phrase. You know why I love that phrase? Because I think that the lowliest of men has reached an all-time low in our day. God does not set over the kingdoms of men the greatest, or the kingdoms of men the greatest of men, 
but the lowliest of men. Now this is Nebuchadnezzar's new assessment of himself. Verse 18, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Why? Because Daniel's a, a, Daniel's a, a minister in the court of the king, and Daniel's living under this tree. Daniel is one of the ones who is seeking shade under the branches and seeking provision from this tree. This is his king that we're speaking of here. He's under under Nebuchadnezzar. This is his kingdom, as it were, that Daniel is part of. So it alarmed him because Daniel knew instantly what the vision meant. And so he was shaken up by this. The king responded and said to Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. The king could obviously tell Daniel was alarmed. I don't know, did he tremble or fall down or start crying or weep or, or need time to catch his breath? I, I don't know. Something happened that the king saw in Daniel. He's upset. Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and all that was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged? It's you, O king. You've become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, reached to the sky, your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angel watcher, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field. Seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. And you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, look at this, that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and He bestows on it whomever He wishes. That was a disease called lycanthropy, which is something that affects the mind of people. It's a very rare disease. Um, the fingernails grow long, the, the hair grows and they get mad in the mind and think that their beasts begin to behave like beasts, not like men. That was the judgment of God upon Nebuchadnezzar. That was what happened. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's not a story. It's not a symbol. This actually literally happened. God took away from Nebuchadnezzar his sanity, his mind of a man, and made him think he was a beast. And he crawled around in the dew of the grass for seven years and ate grass and acted like an animal. Immediately... Sorry, where was I? Verse 25. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he ruled. He needed to learn a very important lesson. It is heaven, heaven that rules. And he sets on thrones whom he wants, and he puts over men whom he wants. It is heaven that rules. Heaven is synonymous with God in that type of a phrase because heaven is the dwelling place of God. So it's not heaven as in the angels and the council of people and Old Testament saints that rules. It is heaven. That is, it is God himself who rules from heaven over the affairs of men. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. That is, repent. Repent, O king. This is what the Lord has decreed. But king, you need to repent. Turn from it. And by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. 
In other words, Daniel's saying, this is what the Lord has decreed. This is what the vision means. But King, you repent and may the Lord might do something with that repentance. He may avert the disaster. He may change the disaster. Maybe the Lord will relent like He did to Nineveh, which happened after this. Maybe the Lord will, before this, maybe the Lord will relent like He did to Nineveh and change His mind or prolong your prosperity or, or postpone what is decreed to happen. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Look at all the me, 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 the my, my, my's, I, I, I. Is this phenomenal what I have done? He's looking out over the land of Babylon, which he had built in the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Those hanging gardens with the water that trickled down, the waterfalls, all built for Nebuchadnezzar's wife. This massive city, this massive kingdom and dynasty, and all of the nations of the world at his beck and command, everything he wanted, all of the wealth, all of the power. And he says to himself, look at what I have done. Look at what I have achieved. I rule. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that what? That the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and his body was, uh, and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period of time, at the end of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Nobody can call God to their tribunal and say, Why is it that you appointed Him and not Him? What have you done in the realm of mankind? Nobody can do that. Why? Because his, gen- his kingdom is from generation to generation. And He does as He pleases. Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens and He does as it pleases Him. Verse 36. At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Now I want you to look up at verse 31. The voice said to Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty has been removed from you. Down in verse 36, I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Who is it that gave Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty or rule? It was taken away from him, and it was given back to him seven years later. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And if you want an example of humbling somebody who walks in pride... You just keep reading to Daniel chapter 5, and that's the story of the fall of Babylon. And uh, Belteshar going in and calling out the, temp- the, uh, the, the articles of worship from the Hebrew temple and bringing them in and using them in a drunken orgy. And then Belteshar saw the handwriting on the wall and said, your kingdom has been weighed and found wanting, and this day it's been taken from you. 
That was the pride of Belshazzar. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Case in point, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar. And you get to the end of it, and look just quickly at the end of chapter 5, the last verses. Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So in chapter 4 and 5, who's the king? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. At the end of chapter 5, since God is able to humble those who walk in pride, who is it that is king? Darius the Mede receives the kingdom at the age of 62. Daniel chapter 5 is a fascinating story in and of itself, and I'll just save that for another day. Friends, what is it that makes God able to rule and gives Him rule over people, over nations, over things? What makes Him sovereign? Does God rule because we voted Him into office? Does God rule because we give Him permission to rule? Does God rule because we cooperate with Him and decide that, okay, well, we're going to do what God wants us to do, and so we do it, and thus His rule is worked out in our lives and amongst nations? Is that how God rules? Or is God sovereign, and is God a ruler, and is He king just by virtue of the fact of who He is? It's just by virtue of the fact of who He is. I'm working my way through this book, The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. I've been working on these two volumes now for about two years. Um, not because I'm not a fast reader. I'm not, but that's not the reason. It's because it was written in the 1600s, and so it's, it's heavy stuff. It's thick reading. It's not something you sit down over your Wheaties and eat in the morning, uh, read in the morning. I had two things marked here. Well, God rules over bookmarks, so I'll just give you one of them. Charnock says this, His sovereignty is extensive over all creatures. He rules all of the heavens and over all of the earth. He is the king of the worlds, the king of ages. He is the one by whom he made all, he is the one by whom all the worlds were made. The worlds were framed by the word of God, the God of kings is kings of the ages and of the worlds, of the invisible world and over the sensible, of all from the beginning of their creation, of whatsoever is measured by time. It extends over angels and devils, over wicked and good, over rational and irrational creatures. All things bow down under His hand. Nothing can be exempted from Him, because there is nothing but what was extracted by Him from nothing into being. In other words, He doesn't receive permission to rule from anybody. Everybody else receives permission to exist by His will. He doesn't answer to anybody. Everything was extracted out of nothing by an act of His will. So He doesn't receive permission to rule from anyone. All things essentially depend upon Him and therefore must be essentially subject to Him. The extent of His dominion flows from the perfection of His essence. Since His essence is unlimited, His royalty cannot be restrained. His authority is as void of any imperfection as His essence is and it reaches out to all points of the heaven above and the earth below. Other princes reign in a spot of ground, and every worldly potentate has confines to his dominions, but God has none. I can see why it takes me two years to work through something like that. In other words, God rules because of who he is. He is the king, and he is the potentate, and he is unlimited in his essence. And because of that, because he does not receive his existence from any of us, nor does he receive his rule from any of us, he is king over all things. God sovereignly rules over all things, every election and every vote of every individual. Every king and every authority rules by his decree, by his allowance. God allows it. God decrees it. He sets up kings and he takes down kings. The audacity of world leaders and the audacity of hope, sorry, the audacity of politicians is that they think that they rule by their own might. Or they think that they rule by the will of the people. Or they think that they have they have achieved their position of prominence and power by their own doing. 
and they will be judged because they fail like Nebuchadnezzar did to recognize that it is heaven that rules over all and they rule only at the will and the decree of God and they will be held responsible for everything that they do. Every dollar they spend, every vote they cast, every executive order they sign, every last thing they do, they will give an account to the one who rules over them. So there are human governments, and yes, all authority and all king kings are derived from God, but behind all of the human governments and all of the kings of our world and the leaders of our world, there stands one who sovereignly rules over all. And in the timing and in the providence of God, he may say, your time is done, you're done, you're over. That's it. Or he may remove somebody from power or prominence and then raise them back up again like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Or he may take somebody, a lowly person, a nobody, and say, now you're going to be king for a while and make them king for a while. Why does God do that? Why Barack Obama and George Bush and Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and the other George Bush and Bill Clinton, why these men? I can't tell you why these men. But I can tell you that there is one who sets them up and there's one who takes them down. And he is the one who rules over all things. He's the one who establishes kings. And he is the one who's sovereign over all elections. In Daniel's day, the world empire was Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, here in Daniel chapter 4, was the object lesson to the children of Israel and to all of us and to all who have ever lived and to all who will ever read this and heed the words of the king that there is one who rules above and beyond and over the realm of mankind, and he is the one who sets up kings and takes down kings. And he is sovereign. He determines who the next president of the United States is going to be, and he's going to determine who the winners of the election are going to be on Tuesday. That's God's choice. You say, but I vote. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But ultimately we recognize it is God's choice. He is the one who does this. The sovereignty of God in Daniel chapter 4 is demonstrated in three things. Number one, the removal of Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty was taken from him. Who decreed that? God decreed it. God announced it. And at the perfect time, when the words were in the king's mouth, look at what I have done. He had no sooner finished the final word of that sentence than a voice from heaven said, Nebuchadnezzar, remember the vision? Remember the dream? Now is the time. Your sovereignty is taken away. The sovereignty of God is seen in the fact that he is the one who removed Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty took him out of office, as it were. Then the sovereignty of God is, is seen in the fact that that kingdom was preserved for Nebuchadnezzar for seven years. Nature abhors a vacuum, and political nature abhors a political vacuum. And anytime there is an absence in the one who rules, or some sort of a weakness, or some sort of an opportunity for somebody else to gain a position of power, people will rush in to fill that void. Nebuchadnezzar was removed from his position, and for seven years, and I don't know how it happened, history doesn't know how it happened, but his kingdom, his entire kingdom, was preserved for him for seven years. Nobody stepped in to fill that void. Nobody jumped in to, be, to declare themselves king. Nobody rushed after all of that power and might and that majesty. Everybody stayed away from it. God preserved that kingdom for Nebuchadnezzar for seven years. And no would-be thrown usurper dared take it. Now what, what happened during that time? Did Daniel step in and fill in the void? He may have, maybe somebody else stepped in and maybe a council of people, but that kingdom was established and preserved in its military might and its majesty and its power, all of it preserved for seven full years until the sovereignty of God was demonstrated in the third thing, and that was the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty. So God said, nope, I'm taking it from you. I'm going to preserve it for seven years, and then I'm going to give it back to you. Friends, what else do you need to see in order to understand 
that God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and He appoints over it whomever He wishes, whenever He wishes, for whatever purposes He might wish. Now you say, that scares me that God is sovereign and God is the one who decides and chooses the kings. Would you rather it be you that chooses the kings? Could you do a better job than God can do? Are you kidding me? You know how thankful I am that it's God who sets up kings and removes kings? And it's not men that do this? You know how thankful I am that God has not left it up to the popular vote of a bunch of people who love to walk in darkness? But that He has established His kingdom and He is ruling it and that He chooses who the kings are? And you know why I can rest in God and His sovereignty over those things? Look at verse 37 of chapter 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true. All his works are true. All his ways are just. All his works are true, and all his ways are just. Are you not glad that he is the one who sets up kings and takes down kings, since all his works are true and all his ways are just? Now, if you do not believe that God is just, and you do not believe that his ways are true, then you will be terrified at the fact that you're not selecting the next leader. But if you can rest in the fact that God is wise, He is infinite in wisdom. He is good. He is working out the plan of the ages, which is all given to us in Daniel chapter 2. Four kingdoms, all literal kingdoms, which will be destroyed and brought to an end by His kingdom when He establishes it. And it will rule and reign forever and ever. That is God's plan for the ages. He's working out a plan. He's not arbitrarily throwing darts at a dartboard to select the next president or the next Congress or the next Supreme Court justice. He's not doing any of that. He is working out His plan and His ways are true. And He is just, and He is good, and He is wise, and we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Now what does this mean for us? That's the theology of it. Now what does this mean for us by way of application? Man, I'm way over time. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of comfort to us. It was comfort to the the Israelites of the day. It's a source of comfort to us because His ways are true and His ways are just. Second, I think that understanding this and knowing this going into whatever election cycle we may face is one of those things that should help us to refocus our priorities. Let me ask you a question. Is America your idol? Is America your idol? You shake your head and you say, no, of course not. I don't bow down and worship an idol, a flag. Is America your idol? Are your freedoms, your prosperity, your liberties, your Second Amendment right, your First Amendment right, the comforts you enjoy, Social Security, Medicare, is America, and living in this country and enjoying the freedoms that we do, is that your idol? I'll help you answer that question if you're kind of struggling with it, you're wondering what I mean. Let me ask you a second question. How you answer this question will determine how you answer the first question. Here's the second question. Which do you think is the greatest tragedy, the greater horror, the greater crime? Number, uh, letter A, number A, letter one, however you want to do it. Letter A, that the glory, the majesty, the name, the truth, the honor of God is besmirched. It is diminished. It is attacked. It is clouded. Or it is blasphemed. Or letter B, the total destruction, annihilation of the United States of America 
and the loss of all of your liberties and your prosperity. I'm not saying I want that to happen. I don't want either one of these to happen. But which of those is the greater crime? The besmirching, which is the greater horror to you? The besmirching of God's name and His glory or the total collapse of this nation and the loss of all your freedoms? Which is the greater horror? This is the greater horror. If you are more willing to see the name of God besmirched so that you can keep your freedoms, your freedoms are an idol. And you need to repent of it. It can only be because you love this country, you love the Constitution, you love the Declaration of Independence, you love your freedoms more than you love your God. If you are willing to see the name of God besmirched in order to preserve those things. I don't want to lose those things. I love those things. But they can't be our idol. Our God is the God that we worship. He is the greatest being in all of the universe. And so to, be, to, to besmirch or to diminish His glory in any way is the greatest crime that can be committed. I love this country as much as the next person, but I will tell you something. I think that the evangelical church in this country has sold its soul to the devil because it seems more than willing to besmirch the glory of God in order to preserve the freedoms of men. You say, what proof could I possibly offer for that? Evangelical Christianity's willingness to join forces with Roman Catholics, Mormons, Imams, rabbis, anybody from any persuasion who just wants God to bless America and shed His grace on thee. The joining forces of those things at the expense of the gospel, at the expense of truth, for the sake of, of pandering to political parties or pandering to get political policies in place or to get people elected, is itself an attack upon the truth and it is a besmirching of the name of God and His glory. To link arms with Mormons and Roman Catholics and Buddhists and Hindus and rabbis and anybody who just believes in God, any God, for whatever reason, and to keep the gospel in the background, let's not talk about that, but let's get this policy passed. Let's get this person elected. Let's get this thing put into place. And if we can just stop abortion in our land and stop the homosexual agenda and stop them teaching our children these things in the school and get prayer to whatever God, doesn't matter which God, whatever God back in the schools, we could just get that happen, then we would be able to preserve this nation and avert the justice and the judgment of God upon this nation. Nope. Christians are joining forces with people and, and marring the distinction of truth and blaspheming the name of God, thinking that in doing so, they're going to be able to accomplish something that is going to prevent the judgment of God upon the nation. And the irony of it is, it is that very besmirching of truth, that very blurring of the lines of truth, that very compromise of the gospel that is going to bring the judgment of God upon the nation. And yet the things that we are doing, we think are preserving us. They're not preserving us. We think if we could stop abortion, we could stop the judgment of God, avert the judgment of God. No, friends, God is not going to judge America for abortion. Abortion is the judgment of God upon America. We have people in our land who are killing our children. That is the judgment of God upon us because His people have turned their back on God. And they are more interested in political posturing than they are in truth and standing for the truth and loving the truth, and saying, no, we have nothing in common with darkness. 
And even though our political agenda may be the same as those who walk in darkness, we will not link arms with them in order to accomplish this end. You know what God's judgment upon the nation of Israel was for in the Old Testament? You read it through, you'll see it time and time again. One of the things that God judged his people for was turning to Egypt. All of the political alliances. You're trusting in Egypt. You're trusting in Moab. You're trusting in Assyria. You're trusting in everybody but me, thinking that this is going to preserve you. Modern evangelicalism has done the same thing. If we could just get the right people elected. No, friends, that is not the answer. That is not the answer. I'm going to give you the answer in just a second. So what should we do? And let me make something clear. I, I love this country. I love righteousness. I hate abortion. I hate the homosexual agenda. I am conservative, and, and every every blood cell in my body is conservative in every way. I'm conservative fiscally. I, I, I tear up when I hear the, de- uh, the Declaration of Independence. I, I try and read that to my family on the 4th of July. I can hardly get through without choking to death on my own tears because that stuff means so much to me. I love this country, but it, it can't be my idol. It can't be my idol. You can love something without being your idol. I love my wife. She's not my idol. I love my children. They're not my idol. I love a lot of things that are not my idol. But I tell you, we have to, as Christians, be willing to say, I am willing to see this entire country go in the handbasket to where it's going rather than besmirch the glory of God because this needs to be what it needs to be, front and center, the very essence of truth and righteousness and the gospel. I don't want horrible things to happen to this country. I don't want it. So what do I do? I vote. And you say, Jim. You just told me, you just told us for a short eternity that our, our destiny does not rest upon my vote. It doesn't. But you vote. You do your duty as a citizen. I, just because God is sovereign over things doesn't mean that you and I don't have a part to play in the outworking of God's sovereign plan. It is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It goes together in every area of life. And we constantly talk about it. Just because I believe in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean I'm not going to go vote. Of course I'm going to go vote. I believe in the sovereignty of God in evangelism and election and in the gospel and in salvation. It is God who saves. But I'll tell you what I do, and I did this on Friday night. I preach the gospel as passionately and persuasively and clearly as I possibly can to unbelievers, and then I leave the results with God. I do my part, but I don't say just because God is sovereign, I'm not going to do anything in evangelism. I don't believe that. I believe that God uses us to accomplish His sovereign ends. I believe that God is sovereign over the protection and preservation of my family when we drive. But I still wear my seatbelt. And I still stay in my lane. I don't say, well, God's sovereignly going to decree that we're going to get to where we're going safely, so I think I'll drive on the other side of the road today. I don't do that. I don't veer into oncoming traffic. I believe that God sovereignly protects me and my family, but I lock my doors at night and I sleep with a gun nearby because I believe that God may sovereignly choose to use me and my gun to protect my family. It is the means to the end, and we do both. We vote, and then we go to sleep and we rest in the sovereignty of God. Lose no sleep. Wring no hands. Dave Rich asked me on Friday night, so what are you doing Tuesday night? Tuesday night, Tuesday night, Tuesday night. What's Tuesday night? I thought, do we have a meeting? We're we supposed to get together Tuesday night? Am I missing something? And I knew there was something going on Tuesday night. And I said, I think I'm going out with some friends to watch a movie Tuesday night. He said, you're not going to stay home and sit in front of the TV and watch the election results? And he was joking. I knew he was joking. He was just being facetious. You know, wring your hands over what's going to happen on Tuesday, election day. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to go vote. And I'm going to go home and sleep like somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God. That's it. I rest. Why? God is the one who sets them up. God is the one who takes them down. He's just. He's good. He's working out His plan. We do our part. We don't wring our hands. We trust in Him. 
He is the King of Heaven and He rules over the affairs of men. So what is the answer? Is it in getting the right policies? Is it in getting the right executive orders signed? Is it politicking and lobbying our elected officials? What is the answer? It is the very thing that Christians seem so quick to abandon. It's the gospel. It's only the gospel. It's always been the gospel. That's what it is. If you don't know what the gospel it is, it's the fact that you're a sinner and Jesus Christ was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day to secure the salvation for you if you will repent and believe in him and trust him for salvation. That's the gospel, friends. And you can go get all the political policies you want in place and all the laws passed that you can possibly dream up. But at the end of the day, all you're going to accomplish is make America a better place for people to go to hell from. You're going to make, you're going to secure people's prosperity and secure people's liberties and that's all going to be great. But I will tell you something. Does it really, 10,000 years into eternity, matter if a woman has had one abortion or 10 abortions or no abortions if she is in hell? Does it matter? She is in hell. You outlawed her abortion. Abortion is a scourge. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, does it really matter if all of these people go to hell? It is the gospel. The gospel changes people's lives. And yet it is the gospel and the truth of the gospel that Christians are so quick to abandon in order to accomplish other things in other realms. And if we poured as much time, effort, and money into the presentation of the gospel and the proclamation of truth as we put into politics, can you imagine the difference? Focus is entirely wrong. It is the gospel. You preach the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. You defend the gospel. You stand on the gospel. You make the gospel the issue. And if everything else goes to hell in a handbasket, it doesn't matter. The gospel is the issue. We stand on the gospel for the glory of God and for the glory of His name. All the while doing what we can, as good citizens, to stand for righteousness and truth in every arena of life. Politics, the marketplace, the culture, our jobs, our family, our church, every area of life we bring under the banner of His truth. And we live out our vocation, our Christian life, under that banner and under His sovereignty, trusting in Him, standing for the gospel and never compromising on that. So be comforted. Keep your focus. Check your hearts for idols. Vote. And then go home and sleep like somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God. Because at the end of the day, He rules in the realm of mankind and He appoints over it whomever He pleases. And His ways are truth and righteousness and justice. Let's pray together. Father, this time that we have had in considering these things has been much needed, at least from my own heart and my own perspective, my own vantage point. I thank You, O God, that You are sovereign over the nations. That This truth is affirmed so many times in so many ways in all of Scripture. We thank You that You are glorious and infinite in Your wisdom and Your justice and in Your goodness. We thank You, Father, that we can trust You and we do. There is a desire in each of us that longs to see righteousness done and righteousness rule in our land. The things that we have mentioned that are sin and unrighteousness are a blight upon our nation and upon the people, upon our culture and upon this world. We long to see righteousness and truth reign. But at the same time, we know that that will never happen fully, entirely. 
like it will happen in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes and He reigns and He puts down all enemies under His feet and He rules over all and He crushes the nations. We long for the day that righteousness might be the rule of the land. When a righteous man rules, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And even in light of our desire to see righteousness and truth triumph, we know that You are working out an eternal plan. Help us to keep that in mind and to see the big picture, to trust You in all things, to rest in Your goodness. We pray, O God, that You would accomplish these things for Your own glory and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord and the coming of our great God and King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.